I'm David Woods-Hale, Director of Marketing and Communications at Amber and BGA, and you're listening to the Ambition Podcast. Risk, change, learning to fail, agility, volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity are topics we regularly write about in Ambition and trends that create opportunities for MBAs. But when it comes to the crunch and change impacts on us, it's all too easy to let our human flaws allow us to put our heads in the sand. So how can we break the cycle and be proactive in the face of unprecedented change? To find out, today I'm delighted to be joined by Stephen Goldback, Principal and Chief Strategy Officer at Deloitte and co-author of Provoke, How Leaders Shape the Future by Overcoming Fatal Human Flaws. Over the next 30 minutes, we're going to investigate how leaders can become more proactive in their approach to business. Well, hi, Stephen. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us for the podcast. I thought as a bit of background, the the best way to start might be with you telling us a little bit about yourself and your career today. Well, thanks very much, David, and really excited to be here. Um, Right now, I am uh, Deloitte's chief strategy officer, uh, which means that I'm responsible for helping us position ourselves in the businesses that we play in to beat our competitors. And we have lots of worthy competitors, so it occupies a lot of my time. I also serve clients in a variety of industries uh, on helping them think through their uh, big strategic questions, whether it's in the consumer product sector or the telecommunications sector. Um, that's been a, uh, a passion of mine. I've been doing that for the better part of the last 25 years. I uh, grew up in Canada as a Toronto Maple Leafs fan, I'm a long-suffering, uh, a long-suffering Toronto Maple Leafs fan. Uh, I moved to the uh, to New York City at the turn of the century. I suppose we can now use that phrase uh, when um, I got a job at Forbes Magazine Group, and then returned uh, to the world of professional services after that. I've got a uh, uh, a wonderful family here in New York City. Uh, my wife and my daughter. Uh, in a fun New York apartment. And as I, as I mentioned to you before, we are doing this in the, in the midst of a COVID quarantine. So it's my first in the two years here dealing with that. So it's been a uh, not so fun couple of weeks, but interesting to uh, to deal with. So really great to be here. Looking forward to our discussion. Great stuff. Thanks very much. Now, on the Ambition podcast, we love having provocative authors, and I'm delighted that your book is actually called Provoke, (laughs) How Leaders Shape the Future by Overcoming Fatal Human Flaws. So could you tell me a little bit more about the book and and perhaps some of the key themes? I I love the fact that you love the title because oftentimes we get asked the question, you know, isn't provoking a bad thing? Isn't that a negative? Isn't that something that's negative? And our belief is actually, we want that to be viewed as a positive because we would like more leaders to feel like they have control over shaping their own futures versus waiting for the future to happen to them. And our insight is that because of Uh, a combination of human biases and the way that we tend to interact with each other in organizations, we fail to both see and act on those emerging trends that are shifting from a matter of if they'll come to fruition to a matter of when they'll come to fruition. And because we fail to see and fail to act on them, we're effectively choosing to let the future happen to us. It's we opened the book with a story about uh, an executive that I met with about 12, 13 years ago, 
where we shared some very initial data on cord cutting behavior. And it was such a small segment of the population at that point, it was less than 2%. But we sort of said, isn't this curious? And the executive literally, you know, uh, uh, in a very Al Bundy-like way, and sorry for the American example, the, the Married with Children show, you know, stuck his hand down his pants and said, 1.75%, why would I care? But it's this kind of denial and 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 then followed by analysis paralysis that tends to delay action. And increasingly, we think that in a world that's changing really rapidly, action is your pathway to learning. Um, if you're not taking action, you're not actually stimulating customer responses in the marketplace. And that's what you're going to learn. That, that's what's going to actually create that learning that allows you to see to what extent customer behavior might be different in the future than it is in the past. And so that's what we're, um, uh, th that's sort of the broad-based themes of the book. And we guess what, with that in mind, like we would usually ask, you know, who do you think that the book is aimed towards? And I think in terms of of this book, given that it, in the title itself, it talks about fatal human flaws, would you advise people to to come to the book with a, with a sort of open mind? Or, you know, do, do you think it's worth sort of accepting that you have flaws before reading it? Or would you recommend this to, to any leader or manager? Well, I, I, I am a student of a professor uh, named Chris Ardress, who, uh, who passed away a number of years ago, unfortunately, um, but left with a wonderful phrase. So I, I hope that all leaders come to every situation with an open mind. And Chris's phrase was, I have something important to say, but I might be missing something. And what he was trying to declare with that phrase was, um, you know, it's important to share your voice and share your perspective in a conversation, but always recognize that the other people in the conversation might also have some important information, data, experiences, thoughts about the world that you can learn from to fill in the gaps of, 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 your, uh, of your knowledge or your views on the world. And so I, I hope that everyone comes into every conversation with that, just reminds himself of that phrase. And so I think as far as human fatal flaws go, we, you know, we are, I think the reality is we are all subject to cognitive biases, um, uh, you know, cognitive biases because we're human. It's not because we're missing something or deficient in some way. It's just, this is the way that we're wired as humans. So I, I do hope that people come to this with an open mind and look, instead of saying, how can I not be human to say, how can I mitigate against some of these fatal flaws? Yeah, I completely hear where you're coming from. But I think with that in mind, you know, we talk a lot about change and we talk a lot about VUCA. And, you know, certainly the way that business journals or journalism covers this is a very positive thing. Change is good. Innovation is great. But I think, you know, returning to your point about being human, humans do, in a lot of cases, fundamentally fear and try and avoid change. They don't like it when change happens around them. So in terms of these fatal human flaws that stop us being proactive when we see change in the horizon, can you maybe share some examples of, of what these are and how we can move to overcome them? Absolutely. So there are a number of different cognitive biases, the so-called fatal flaws that we refer to in the title, that effectively make it difficult for humans to incorporate changes around them into their worldview. Um, 
I'll talk about a, a, a few of them to illustrate. So there's the status quo biases. We have um, a preference for the way things are today because we are risk averse as human beings. And we see deviation from the status quo as a loss, and we're therefore law and we're loss averse. So we are much more comfortable with the status quo. It's also hard to incorporate change in your environment because of a number of other uh, a number of other human fatal flaws. So whether it's um, the availability bias or the egocentric bias, two related biases that have to do with the degree to which you can incorporate information uh, in your surroundings. So the availability bias is that we tend to have a preference for information that is easily accessible to us. And the egocentric bias is we have a preference for information that conforms to our uh, current point of view. As a result of that, you can imagine the role that something like social media plays in both of those. First, the algorithm tends to uh, feed us things that we already agree with. So not only does it feed the egocentric bias, but it also creates an availability bias where we don't see different points of view uh, around us. And we also tend not to uh, incorporate things that we just don't see in our surroundings. So I've got a particular view of the world from living on the Upper West Side in Manhattan and what I see every day that would be very different if I lived uh, where you live, David, in the UK, or if I lived somewhere in India or somewhere in China or even in a different neighborhood in New York. So my view is shaped on by what I see every day. And I think what leaders have to do is recognize that these biases exist and fight their way through them to make sure they're getting diverse perspectives from outside their uh, bubble, if you will. And that's some of the human biases. But when you couple these human biases with that prevent us from responding and incorporating change in our environment with the way that we tend to interact with each other in large organizations, we tend to take difficult conversations offline. We tend to defund uh, budgets that don't have immediate payout, like things like exploring uh, exploring new consumer behaviors. And so therefore, we tend not to interact with each other in large-scale organizations in a way that promotes uh, the exploration of things that we don't know. All of these collectively put blinders uh, on the organization and their teams to be able to see the things that are associated with VUCA, even though we all say VUCA, exponential change, et cetera, we tend not to act consistent with that. I, I absolutely hear where you're coming from. I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think, you know, you, you, you made a comment about status quo, and I think that's that's a really interesting um, piece to pick up on because, you know, we do talk a lot about, you know, I think, you know, theoretically, we don't like the, the status quo and we want it to change. But practically, you're right. These biases come into play and it makes us feel that we're moving away from what we're used to. And that's a bad thing. Now, in terms of the status quo, I don't think that it has ever been shaken as much as what the pandemic has caused over the past 18 months, two years. And that is something that we faced as a, as a global community. Do you think that that has changed how leaders approach change in a good way and I suppose coming out of the pandemic, what are the, the real key traits that you think we need to be a successful leader in the in the new normal, in the new sort of way of thinking? Yeah, I think that there's a number of things that uh, your question uh, provoked me to, to, to think about. Um, so number one is, here's the problem with the status quo. The status quo feels 
not very risky, right? Doing the same thing that we're doing today feels like it's not risky, but actually in a VUCA world, as you described, it's incredibly risky. Imagine saying the world is changing faster than it's ever changed, but I'm going to do the same thing over and over again. That That is like the riskiest thing you can do. But yet when management teams get together, they say, boy, doing that new thing, that's scary. That's really risky. Maybe And, and they're effectively saying the status quo is not risky. But instead, I think that what we need to do is flip that orthodoxy to say, trying something new in the face of unprecedented change is actually the least risky thing that you could do. Doing the same thing that we've always done in the face of unprecedented change, that is ridiculously risky. But we need to change the way we talk about it because, again, it feels safer than it is. Um, it feels safer than it is. And doing something different is actually feels riskier than it is, too. So we need to change that. As far as the pandemic goes, I think the thing that I hope that leaders take away from the pandemic is that a lot of the things that are now changing as a result of the pandemic, for example, the ability to work remotely and, and this, this trend towards hybrid work as we come out of the pandemic, is not something that needed to be forced upon us by the pandemic. We had all the tools to work remotely, to have a hybrid work, to get all the benefits that uh, many of us have come to actually enjoy over the pandemic, with which is more time to be with our families uh, or do things to uh, in our personal in our personal lives because of the lack of a commute um, and more flexibility. We had all the tools to make that happen before the pandemic. We just never ran the test. We always assumed that somehow it wouldn't work or we could never be productive outside of the office, but we didn't explore that hypothesis. And so the pandemic forced us to do that test. And so what I hope that leaders take away from the pandemic is instead of saying we could never do that or that will never work, actually decide that as a result of all of this, what we need to do when faced with a question is actually run a mini test, uh, what we call in our first book, Detonate, a minimally viable move to see whether it's true or not, or whether it can be done. And I think part of the uh, mindset of a, of a provocateur is to always be a little bit dissatisfied with the way things are today and see if, and test to see if you can make it a little bit better. Absolutely. In Amber, and certainly through Ambition, we talk a lot about the climate emergency and the responsibility that MBAs have to, to make a difference in the world in, in order to alleviate and address this um, massive challenge. Now, I think in terms of climate, that's something that we've talked about for years, but it only seems to me certainly to be very recently that people are actively taking strategic action, certainly in the business world, to address it. How do you think businesses will be impacted by climate change? And, and what do you think the responsibility should be of businesses in responding to the challenge that it poses? Well, I think climate change is a perfect example of another cognitive bias, which is the uh, discounting of the future. Like we tend to overweight things that we can see in the present. And sadly, you know, climate change is something that's been in the press for years about its forthcoming, but only I think as we started to see some of the ramifications of the changing of the changing climate with the weather patterns that we've observed all over the world, it's starting to come, it's starting to feel real to people. And therefore, as a society, a global society, we are 
you know, being spurred into more action um, than than we've seen before. I, I look. I think businesses absolutely need to respond to climate change um, from every perspective possible. So, simply from a if if we assumed that businesses were nothing more than capitalistic uh, to take the most you know purest and negative form of a capitalist business. If they were only that, they would need to respond to climate change because there are many risks to the business that are imposed by climate change that are, to some businesses, existential. Um, whether it's the changing preferences of their customers or the disruptions that it'll uh, eventually create to their workforce or to their supply chain, um, the you know businesses need to take action today to. Uh, mitigate and plan for the impacts of climate change on their business. I, I happen to personally have a much more positive view of the potential for businesses to help than just the the traditional, you know, uh, pure capitalist economist view of businesses. So I, I believe very much in stakeholder capitalism and the fact that businesses have a role to play in the augmentation of of society. And so I think. If businesses think about serving multiple constituencies, uh, including the societies and the communities they live in, they have a role to make our um, uh, our society more sustainable because they benefit from, you know, more than other constituencies from the, you know, the high quality infrastructure and consistency that that a well functioning society faces. So I think. Businesses are going to have to take a cue from their workforce, who increasingly wants um, uh, to be climate friendly, from their customers, who are increasingly going to make uh, brand preferences based on um, you know businesses' sustainability practices. And, and I think they're going to have to be more and more transparent about their activities because uh, information is free. And I think businesses that, that are transparent and moving towards better climate goals will be rewarded by the markets in the long run. So we've talked about a number of issues in the last in the last sort of half hour or so. And I think that, um, no disrespect to our listeners, but I think a lot of people will be listening to this and a lot of these ideas will resonate with them. So, you know, the future is scary, so let's not think about it. Changing the status quo is uncomfortable, so let's not do it. Um, taking risks is difficult. I don't want to do that. I don't want to fail. I don't want to lift my head above the parapet. It's easier to, put my, to bury my head in the sand. And I think that's just, you're right. Our human nature would 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 put us in that position to feel that way, but your book actually spotlights people who do think differently from that and who have actively behaved differently from that. How did you choose these people, and and why do they share their stories in this sort of way? Well, so the people we picked were uh, Debbie Beale, uh, Ryan uh, Gravel, and Valerie Rainford, and they are three amazing people. Um, you know that we knew or had some associations with who have done amazing things in uh, the space that's sort of the intersection of business and and purpose. And all of them provoked with purpose and had some insight about the world that they saw was missing and just had the uh, you know gumption to change it. So with Debbie, it was the foundation of uh, something called Posse, which is a 
uh, nonprofit here in the uh, in in the United States that sends kids from underprivileged neighborhoods to great uh, colleges and universities. Ryan Gravel is the uh, uh, the brainchild behind the Atlanta Beltline, which is one of the uh, biggest ur- urban projects uh, over the last twenty years. It's creating a wonderful urban revival around uh, the greater Atlanta area. And Valerie Rainford is uh, the person behind the great progress that J.P. Morgan Chase made in advancing Black talent at um, in their executive ranks, but also the, the broader ranks of J.P. Morgan Chase. And all of them saw things that could be done and took action on them. So what made us choose them was the fact that they they took the action. They they decided to do something about it, even in the face of uncertainty uh, that they personally that they personally faced. So Debbie didn't know this would work, and uh, Ryan faced all kinds of political challenges to bringing uh, his vision to life. And Valerie faced, uh, you know, I'll let you read. I'll let your readers read Valerie's story, but she faced all kinds of personal and professional challenges throughout her career, and and overcame them to create incredible impact. So, in part the reason we chose them was because the impact that they created, and we were personally inspired by them, Jeff Tuff and and, and me, my co-author. I think that that's fantastic. And I, I I would thoroughly recommend looking into the book and reading about these people because they are inspirational. But if we wanted to take it right back down to 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 the micro level and 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 consider the theory of it starts with me. Just to finish, if you were to say to our listeners, what's one small thing that they could do um, as soon as they finish listening to this podcast to be a little bit more prov- provocative and a little bit more proactive in their approach to how they see themselves and how they they really manage within the business world. I I will, I'm going to give you two short ones. So the first is just, just to be really curious about the world. So as you walk through the streets, and this is sort of something that Ryan talked about in, in our one of our interviews with him, just observe what people are doing. Observe what they're be how they're behaving. Be curious about why they're doing it. What are the things that drive human behavior? Because human behavior is the most basic subatomic element of business today. Because to change, to grow, to create change in an organization, ultimately human beings need to do something different than what they're doing today. So be curious about the whys and the hows of how people behave. And I think. The, the the last lesson I'll share is a is a personal story, and it's got nothing to do with business, but it's sort of a reminder of for me of of why taking action is important. So, about over a decade ago, I was suffering with a medical condition that I won't go into. That was the kind of condition that you just you know you just sort of let it fester for a little while. And you hope that it'll go away, but it never does on its own. But it's very, it was easily treatable, um, you know, something to do with, you know, my, my stomach and, you know, is a little, you know, embarrassing, but eventually, you know, I went to a doctor and because it was just like, I was just done with it. And the doctor said to me, you know, this was really easy to deal with. Why didn't you just, why didn't you just deal with it? And since then, I was like, yeah, why didn't, why didn't I just deal with this? this? This was not a problem at all. And I've taken that attitude and said, boy, 
if I see anything that I feel dissatisfied with, I'm going to just deal with it. And I think if you combine the ability to be curious and see where you could improve the world and take the attitude that I can do something about it, then you just might go out and do something. And I think that that's um, uh, hopefully something that your listeners can take away from my own personal kind of uh, experience with that. Absolutely. That's great advice, Stephen. Thank you very much. Thank you again for, for taking the time to, to speak to me today for, for lots of inspiration and lots of really great practical advice. It's really been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you, David. Really a pleasure. And if you want to find out more, there is a wealth of content on thriving amid volatility, uncertainty, complexity and ambiguity on the Ambition website, which you can access at www.associationofmbas.com forward slash ambition.